Well, I'm very happy to be here today, and thank you very much for inviting me. If you are looking for controversy, you'll surely get it. And um, what uh, uh, has been suggested as a panorama, I have several books on time, and it is a very complicated subject. So a panorama may be incomprehensible. But the idea is that I'm here for the next few days, and we can discuss. So I just touch upon these topics, and we can discuss over the next few days. And of course, I am very happy to be speaking to artists. Because I usually speak to scientists. And scientists are always after money. Artists are after truth. See, as the joke goes, if you find people in a cafe seriously discussing art, you can be sure they are businessmen talking about their next investment in art. Whereas if you find people seriously discussing money, they are probably impoverished artists. So, so the uh, reason, well, if they are impoverished is that they don't care about money, they, were care, they cared about something else, and that's what brought them to that state. So uh, I hope uh, we will go along. Let me start with the creation hymn from the Rig Veda. And it says, there was neither existence nor non-existence, neither air nor sky beyond. Who knows how it all came about? Even the gods came later, so they don't know. And he who sees it from the highest heaven, he knows. Or perhaps he knows not. Forget about creating it, he does not even know how it came about. Only poets, searching deep in their hearts, understand what joins non-existence to existence. They can only understand creation, only poets, right? Neither God nor gods, but only poets. So uh, that, I think, is the idea. Now uh, let me come to colonialism. I give a simple definition of colonialism. And I think it's very important to understand that because colonialism is all about stories. So con allism, how do you con all people? You may not con them for all time, but you con them. And you do that with the help of things which you regard as sacred, like including mathematics and science. So that's what we are engaged in. So let me give you a quick background about colonialism. Colonialism in India was not a military conquest. It was established by trickery, by conflicts, not through any kind of military or technological superiority. So Vasco da Gama arrived in 1498. A century later, the Portuguese desperately tried to conquer India. They got only a small pocket by doing a Constantine. They tried to convert the emperor Akbar, and they reported in Rome that, oh, well, we are going to conquer India now. The first major victory took 250 years for the British. The Battle of Plassey in 1757, it was won by bribery and deceit, not through any kind of uh, anything else. So the British remained militarily insecure for another at least 100 years. So the uprising of 1857 showed how easy it was to unseat them. They were thrown out, but then they came back. And then colonialism introduced a new weapon. And this new weapon sort of uh, knocked out uh, the Indians. They totally failed to understand it. And this weapon was the university. So the university, first university started functioning in India in 1857. And Nobody understood. I mean, it's not Macaulay. Macaulay's idea was that a university prevents, I mean, education prevents revolt. 
and he prescribed this idea for the British poor at about the same time that Marx was writing the Communist Manifesto. So, uh, of course, people knew about universities. Universities existed in India from 2,000 years earlier. The University of Nalanda, for example, now it's all ruins. Those are the ruins. People are farming on top of the ruins. It was a huge university. Uh, but the Western University was something special. And what was special about it was that it was created by the church. It was created by the church during the Crusades, which is a time of religious fanaticism. And what was its aim? Why would somebody create something like that during the Crusades? Because it was a religious war, wanted to win over the Muslims, and could not do it by force. The way Europe was converted, the way the pagans in Europe were eliminated by force, that was not possible. So they wanted to persuade, so they wanted to train people, they wanted to train an army of missionaries. So the object was to inculcate blind loyalty in the church, to indoctrinate people to believe in all sorts of church superstitions, contrary to common sense. I mean, the trivial example is literal belief in virgin birth and propagate it as a superior sort of belief. We will see that in mathematics. So instead of knowledge based on evidence, it was knowledge based on myths and stories. I don't know how many of you know science, but you only got stories about science. All of you have got stories about it, Galileo, Copernicus, and so on, all false stories. So for the colonized, the church and state came together and they changed the uh, uh, aim slightly. It was not to create loyalty towards the church, but loyalty towards the West because the British ruled with the help of Indians, and if they were not loyal, they were overthrown. So missionary schools had existed in India for many centuries, from 1508, that was the first uh, missionary school which was started. But now that became compulsory, because you had to go through school in order to enter the university and get a government job. That was the bribe at the end. So after this 15 years of indoctrination, the colonially educated became totally loyal, blindly loyal to the West and believe everything Western is superior, and like missionary minds, they did not apply common sense, even in the matters related to mathematics and science. They did not ask for evidence, but they have stories. And one story supports another, and then supported by a third, and so on. So when we want to decolonize, what we want to do is to unindoctrinate. It's a very difficult task. You can train a dog so easy. How do you untrain a dog? Anybody tried it? It's extremely difficult to untrain Something, somebody or some, uh, someone already trained. But since indoctrination was achieved by myths, the idea is to overthrow, to dismantle those myths, to overthrow the related superstitions which were instilled by colonialism. So the British left, but colonialism continues because it's about the mind. And the mind was captured and infiltrated with all these stories that persist. And it's a very real struggle for me, so far as I'm concerned, to overthrow this. So I will restrict myself only to Western myths and superstitions about time. So uh, there were three gifts of the Meiji, if you like, which colonialism gave, three gifts about time. One was the calendar, the other was the clock, and the third was the clockwork cosmos. So let's go over it. I forgot to switch on my time clock. Hmm? Let me... Try to switch it on. By the way, I'm very happy we started a bit late. Hmm? It's against the tyranny of the clock. Okay. So today is 18th of March, 2017. Hmm? Did something special happen 2017 years ago? Why do we count time from there?
Yeah, it's not a rhetorical question, but let me answer. Be people typically say birth of Christ. Hmm? Now, that's not right. No? Jesus is myth. It's not history. But you attach it to history. All dates are to be given in reference to that myth. So the myth becomes history. Hmm? The zero point of the Christian calendar is well known, was fixed in the 6th century, the Dionysius Exiges. And this was done in relation to the date of Easter. And he got to that point by back calculation. So today people learn ADBC superstition along with ABCD in colonial schools. For every date that you state, you must state Anno Domini or Year of Our Lord or Before Christ. It's a ritual. But rituals are the most important aspect of religion. doesn't matter what you believe. You participate in the ritual. You know, like somebody goes to church, is a good Christian. Somebody goes to the mosque, is a good Muslim. Somebody goes to the temple, is a good Hindu. It's a ritual which is important. And because these dates are stated so often, and you know the equation, thousand lies make a truth, millions of people believe that Jesus was a real historical figure. If you ask for evidence, where is the evidence? Nobody has. But Jesus was not even an original myth. Was a myth true, but not even an original myth. Similar to the Greek god of love, Bacchus. Copied from the Egyptian author, as Herodotus tells us, Porphyry tells us. Bacchus was also born of a virgin mother, virgin in the sense of virgin soil, extremely fertile. On winter solstice, that's nine months after equinox. The symbol of Bacchus was the cross, which is a phallic symbol. And here, as you see, this looks like uh, uh, image of Jesus on the cross, but it says Orpheus Bacchus. So it's an image of Bacchus, because that was the symbol of Bacchus. So, the church copied it, it changed it. It changed Christianity in the process. The festivities of Baku celebrated creativity, sexual love, and equity. This is a very essential aspect of uh, what is called pagans or Neoplatonism or whatever. As in the Indian festival of Holi, which just got over a few days ago, where people traditionally consume bhang, which is an aphrodisiac, cannabis. It's a hypnotic and throw colors, so when everybody is colored, they all look equal. So this is holy. They are all colored. Or this. How do you make out who is who? They all look alike. That's equity for you. But after the church married the state in the 4th century Christian era, it changed Christianity. Changed Christianity, rejected equity. A state cannot treat its citizens on par with non-citizens. So there must be some special benefit for Christians. A reservation in heaven or whatever. And he declared sex a sin. Augustine came up with his doctrine of sin. So when you declare uh, Jesus as Christ or Savior, you articulate the superstition hmm, of a literal belief in virgin birth, not a symbolic thing. For he cannot save others unless he is himself free from sin. And therefore, uh, church rejected this and rejected both equity and creativity. So, fourth century CE, the church adopted the Roman calendar as the Christian calendar, and it happened to be a defective calendar. Why was it defective? And I think this is a very important point to make, because there's so much false history about what Greeks did and what Greeks did, all based on very, very late texts. No solid evidence. So, this is solid evidence that the Greeks and Romans were arithmetically challenged. Arithmetically challenged, I'm not saying mathematically challenged. They didn't understand simple arithmetic.
So they copied their calendar from the Egyptians, the Greeks, but they couldn't keep track of the months. And therefore the Romans used to joke, ha, Greek calends. So Greek calends means never. First day of the month was called calends, so it means never. But the Roman calendar itself was massively defective. So when it was reformed, the so-called Julian reform, minus 46, they needed a year of 445 days. 445 days, so you can see how badly off it was. Just to realign the equinoxes, they had to have a new year that long. So this happened after Julius Caesar's victory, military victory in Egypt. And he got it from a learned Egyptian sausages from Cleopatra's court. And he suggested the reformed calendar, which is today called the Julian calendar. Now, incidentally, it shows that when you have a military victory, uh, knowledge flows towards the barbarian military conqueror, what Toynbee calls barbarian incursions. So if you have Hulegu coming, conquering Baghdad, then after a century they turn to Islam. Alexander comes, you find that suddenly Greek architecture starts copying Persian architecture, and so on. Lots of examples. But Sausagenes understood that the Greeks and Romans could not do uh, things like fractions. They were arithmetic challenged, so he gave a very simple system. So seven months of 30 days, alternating with uh, five months of 31 days. And then every fourth year, a leap year. But even this simple thing, the Romans didn't understand. It's too complicated for them. How? They counted as follows. So say 2016, year one, that's leap year, year one. Then 17, year two. 18, year three and 19 year 4. So they said after 2016, the next leap year should be 2019. So they did that for something like 20 years. And, and then finally Augustus Caesar discovered that there is some problem, it isn't quite like that. Fourth year will mean that it should be divisible by four, so after 2016 it should be 2020. And for that brilliant achievement, the month of August is named after him. And then, of course, there was this vanity issue. He said, I am not less of a Caesar than Julius. So if July has 31 days, then August should have 31 days. And so it has 31 days. So ultimately, they ended up with five months of 30 days and seven of 31 days. And what to do with the extra two days? They took it from, out from February. So February was reduced to 28 days. And if you look at the Roman calendar, now it has 28, 29, 30, 31 days. How on earth can it hope to keep track of the lunar cycle? Impossible. Okay. And of course that damages, uh, incidentally damages creativity for the lunar cycle, correlates with women's fertility cycle, of ovulation and menstruation. And perhaps because of lunar tidal forces, which are, they are physical forces, they are very strong. Anyway, uh, people usually start dividing lunar calendar, solar calendar, it isn't like that. The Romans couldn't do the solar calendar right either. Why not? Well, they are, if you add a leap year every fourth year, then the length of the year, the so-called tropical year, is 365 and one-fourth of a day. Right? Wrong. Even if you learnt in school that the length of the year is 365 and one four day, it is wrong, it is hopelessly wrong, even by the standards of 1500 years ago. Why is it wrong? The tropical year, which is the time between two equinoxes of the same type, say summer to summer, is 365.242 days, not 365.25 days. But what was the problem? You try writing one fourth, you try writing 365.242 in Roman numerals, 
You know how to do it? You can't do it. There is no systematic notation for fractions because the Romans didn't have fractions. Egyptians had fractions. But Romans didn't have fractions, so they couldn't even say it. A very complicated way of saying it. So they had names for only simple fractions. They had 12 as a base, so they used to use fractions, parts of 12. So they could not say the right length of the year. And what was the effect? Effect was that after the Nicene Council, the church used the Julian calendar to determine the date of Easter. Easter was then the major festival, not uh, Christmas. So Easter was defined as the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox. All right, so we are just there. Provided it did not coincide with the Jewish Passover, because there was a, a quarrel with the Jews, and uh, a Bakrid, which came later, so in which case it was shifted to the next Sunday. So to fix the date of Easter, it required a calendar which could correctly fix the date of equinox, number one, so solar cycle should be right. And number two, it could also fix the date of phases of the moon, which uh, couldn't do. The error of 0 0.01 seems very small, but it means one day in a century. So within a century, the date of Easter slipped. The date of Easter slipped, and uh, <clears throat> that became obvious. And then calendar reforms were attempted from that time. And there was this uh, pope whose unfortunate name was hilarious. <laughs> so he tried and the calendar reforms failed. Uh, but the church controlled the Roman state at that point of time. It had access to all knowledge. So if those calendar reforms failed, it means nobody knew in the Roman Empire what the right length of the tropical year was. <clears throat> Okay, so there's lack of knowledge of astronomy, despite tall tales of Greek glorification. I just mentioned them. So one of those tall tales is about Ptolemy. Claudius Ptolemy, nothing to do with the Ptolemy dynasty. Apparently, that's what people say. His book, the current form of the book, which comes from the 12th century, has a slightly better, uh, but still incorrect, duration for the tropical year. It was never used in the Christian calendar. So the book did not exist at that point of time, in that form. Books are accretive, scientific books especially are accretive, so it kept changing. The 12th century book represents 12th century knowledge, not 2nd century knowledge. And that failure proves that this sort of history is fraudulent. The history of Greek glorification is fraudulent. And I have a small booklet on that, maybe you can take a look, it can be downloaded from the internet, look for it. In contrast, now 5th century, we are not talking about present day and comparing with then. 5th century, if you look at Aryabhatta, he had a very precise duration for the sidereal year, order of magnitude better. So the calendar gives us robust non-textual evidence. You see, you take a text, you can go on interpreting it and you can go on speculating on it. You take a late text and say, oh, this is what was there, this is where it came from. How does anybody know? From a 12th century text, you cannot deduce what happened 1000 years earlier, otherwise I'll take a text on aerodynamics and English from uh, London and say this was the work of some Sanskrit scholar in the 5th century, you'll all laugh. This also deserves to be laughed at. So the calendar gives us robust non-textual evidence which was never used. So early Greeks and Romans were inferior and backward in mathematics and astronomy. Contrary to Greek glorification, this history of science was an important component why colonial education was introduced. It was introduced for the sake of science. They said we are so good in astronomy, that's what Macaulay said. It was wrong. So I won't go into all those details, Copernicus and so on. Now I'll just come to quickly, I'm taking too much time now. The Gregorian reform was done for 
apart from a religious reason, an economic reason, a practical reason, the key source of wealth was overseas trade or overseas loot, which required a good technique of navigation. Because without that, you get a ship, if a ship sinks, you lose too much. So good calendar was needed for navigation because latitude measurement is done, in, if you do it during the daytime, you do it by looking at the altitude of the sun at noon. And you need a good calendar to determine the solar declination. There is a formula given by Bhaskar 1, 7th century. If you like, I can show it to you, but I have suppressed it. It is there in my um, other, there is a video on tale of two calendars. If you could take a look at that, you'll find the formula there. If you like, I can give you the reference. I have it with me. I can show you what it is, the text. So the, uh, uh, this was the key reason. Now, what did the Gregorian reform do? It corrected the duration of the tropical year. Every hundredth year was made a leap year, uh, was made not a leap year, and every thousandth year was made a leap year. So you take away 0 0.01 and then add 0 0.001, so it becomes 365.241, approximately correct. On an average, not correct that in the sense that the calendar is correct and equinox comes always on the same date, no. The question is, how did Clavius, who authored the reform, Christoph Clavius, the Jesuit general, how did he arrive at this figure? So he did not arrive at it by observation. He arrived at it by documents. What documents? What was the new document that came at that time? So these documents, I mean, Tycho Brahe also could not have made those observations because his instruments were defective. But they were not done by observation because the Protestants did not accept this Gregorian reform. They could not measure the duration of the year until 1752, after Newton's death. So Europeans did not know the right length of the year in the 17th century. And the documents came from one of Clavius' students, Matteo Ricci, was in India. He was in Cochin, where the astronomical texts were to be found, very sophisticated astronomical texts. I'll come to that. This is his original letter in his own handwriting, written in 1581. And if you see over there, this thing which is in red, he is talking about an intelligent Brahmin or an honest mood to study about the chronicles, dos tiempos, Indian methods of timekeeping. So, muiro honorado, or uh, Brahmane intelligence. So that's what he's looking for, to find out. So he was there, he was looking for it, and this is direct handwritten evidence which I got from the Jesuit archives. So in contrast, if you look at the Indian calendar, it's always a 30 days. It's defined like that, mathematically defined like that. When the sun and the moon go apart by 20 degrees, uh, by 12 degrees, that's a lunar day. And so 30 of them will always make a month. It's not a Hindu calendar, because the same astronomical model was used by Arabs, it was used by Buddhists, Buddhists took it to China, the Chinese calendar was made by Buddhists, and so on, and probably also the Maya. Because the start of the Indian calendar is very close to the start of the Maya calendar. 5,000 years is just a matter of 10 years. So full moon is always on the 15th, say Ides, Ides of March, Purnima. It follows the seasons. And that's very important because the key season in India is the agricultural, uh, is the rainy season important for agriculture because agriculture is rain driven. And this is celebrated in Indian culture, in dance and so on, song. Every child knows about it. The Gregorian calendar doesn't have a rainy season. Therefore, its adoption leads to very bad effects for farmers. One of these effects, which I have been trying to document off and on, is the phenomenon of delayed monsoon. The monsoon comes on time on the traditional calendar, 
but delayed on the Gregorian calendar. And that ruins Indian farmers because they are, their livelihood is very sensitive. They don't get a crop. They are finished. They are dead. So, for example, in 2005, monsoon came on time. And then again in 2009. So these are some headlines. So government scrambles to save Kharif. Uh, that's a crop. Prays for Rabi. What will happen in the next season? Government is praying. India faces monsoon washout. It comes on the headline because it's a very major issue. So many people, millions of people, their lives are affected. Drought almost certain. Look at that poor chap there. He is dead. If he, if he doesn't rain, he doesn't uh, live. And see all the kinds of things that are done in order to uh, call for rains. But unfortunately, when I was reading this, I was sort of laughing. Why was I laughing? I'm a very cruel person. No. The point is that after that it rained heavily. <laughs> and when people are preparing for drought, there are actually floods all across the country. So you see, there's such a jam, this chap is sleeping in his car, and then they are afraid that there's going to be massive flooding in the Yamuna River, and so on. Yamuna Bank will get ruptured, then floods everywhere. And there was a repeat of that again in 2014, and so on. I've been doing that. This is in Hindi. I'm sorry, I don't have an English newspaper to show you. So this says that fear of uh, horrible drought. That's what it says. Danger of horrible drought. Anyway, but what I want to say is that the colonial mind does not think about it. Colonial mind does not think. So it adopted the Gregorian calendar because it says anything coming from the West is superior. Doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter what superstitions are associated with it. Doesn't matter what economic consequences are associated with it. And so this is uh, because the colonial mind's identity is tied to it. You know, most people learn their date of birth only on that calendar. They don't know any other calendar. And they go by stories. So we adopted that, although it continues to ruin farmers. Very difficult. For 10 years, I have been trying to get the government to change. And it's very difficult to move the government. You know? So let me go to the next thing, which is the clock. Apart from the calendar, there was this clock which came along. And the clock, I mean the mechanical chronometer, a watch, which some of you might still be wearing, although I think after this phone, we've stopped using it. So this was the second time gift of colonialism. So clocks have existed from ancient times. No question about it. All sorts of celestial clocks, sundials, night sky, hourglass, water clocks, incense sticks, breath. Breath was one of the ways of uh, counting time. Like you use fingers for measuring distance. The mechanical clock was invented in China. It's a myth that it was invented in Europe. Needham provides it. It had an escapement. I won't go into all those details. It had those gears and escapement. Susong had a clock tower in the 11th century, very famous. It was developed by Arabs in the Al Jazari in the 12th century. You find that it appears in Europe around the 14th century. Now the issue of you know what was the precise escapement mechanism is not very un very important. What is important is that the West incorporated mechanism as part of its culture. The church adopted the mechanical clock and clock towers as a symbol, as its symbol. Why was that? So no doubt it was used to synchronize prayers, but prayers were being synchronized from before the mechanical clock. And other religions synchronized prayers in different ways. So what was the uh, mechanical clock about? And basically it was intended to emphasize apocalypse, that time is running out. Time is running out. 
repent, doomsday is near. It was an important dogma, an important way of uh, developing the uh, medieval church. So these are very common uh, architectural symbols in Europe. Now maybe becoming less common because you have other tall buildings. But this used to be the tallest building once upon a time. Now the mechanical clock evolved into the chronometer. Mechanical clock was a very inaccurate thing. It evolved into the chronometer which keep, kept time precisely. Hmm? Apparently. What is keeping time precisely? We'll come to that question a little later. So... Uh, had an important economic reason for the chronometer. What was that? Longitude determination. Again, related to navigation because navigation was related to means of wealth. To determine longitude at sea. So European dreams of wealth rested on that. Now Harrison's chronometer solved the problem and uh, people are not sure, around 1760s. And it came into, I mean, it was presenting a problem for navigation much later, even in the end of the 19th century. However, the full story is suppressed. What is the full story? The full story is that, you know, that the fact that local time varies with longitude was well known for a thousand years. For example, Aryabhat says in his Aryabhati, the earth is round like a kadam flower. It stands supportless in space. Because if it's supported by something, then who supports that? That is the kind of argument that was given. You can see that it is round because, see, the horizon is there. You can measure how much it is by looking at the distance from here to the horizon. It says the sun and stars go round the earth because the earth rotates. This was his unique statement that the earth rotates and not the celestial sphere. It appears to rotate. The stars and sky they appear to rotate in the opposite direction. And he concludes when it is sunrise at Lanka, it is midnight at Siddhapur, midday at Jabkoti, and sunset at Romak. So what are these things? So Lanka is not Sri Lanka, it's just indicative that Lanka is a point near Sri Lanka where the meridian of Ujjaini, like the meridian of Greenwich is copied from there, meridian of Ujjaini meets the equator. So it's a point close to Sri Lanka. Likewise, Siddhapur is not Singapore. Yavakoti, very interesting that Javans are to the east and not to the west, because it's already, it's usually confounded with Greeks. So uh, Yavakoti is something like Kamboj. And sunset at Romak, Romak is Alexandria. Indicative, indicative, not actually Alexandria. These are actually four cardinal, four, uh, uh, cardinal cities separated by 90 degrees each. But the key neglected question, see, this fact was known. So what was it that was, why did uh, Europe have a longitude problem? Why did Europeans alone have a longitude problem? Indians, Arabs and so on, probably Maya and Egyptians also knew about uh, celestial navigation. So the answer is that they did not know the correct radius of the earth. Why? Because they didn't know the corresponding aspect of the Pythagorean calculation. I have recently written a paper on that. They were arithmetically challenged. They had a poor understanding of the Pythagorean calculation. Don't forget about theorem and proving and so on. The idea is that you should be able to calculate. So if you are given uh, three, some data related to the triangle, you should be able to calculate the longitude difference. And the 7th century Indian uh, mathematician Brahmagupta said, ignorance of the Earth's radius makes longitude calculations futile. Bhuvyasasya gyanat vyartham deshantram. Futile to calculate uh, longitude. Columbus underestimated the size of the Earth by 40%. Maybe he did it to get his grant. This way you go around, so it's very quick. Small Earth. 
but we don't know maybe it was for that maybe he was genuinely confused but portugal uh, banned the use of globes because using the globe for navigation led to disasters but albiruni calculated using indian techniques we don't know what the figure the indian technique came up with but albiruni used arabic meals as his unit and so we know that it's very precise arabic meal and english mile are very strongly um, related and he verified khalifal mamun's estimate where he sent a team to the desert to measure out physically measure out one degree of the arc even in plane navigation you can calculate the longitude difference if you know the difference of latitude you know the course angle you should be able to do that provided you have accurate trigonometric values okay so uh, the jesuit general christoph clavius he published uh, the uh, stolen and interpolated indian trigonometric values accurate to 10 decimal places in 1608 he published it in his name but he did not know enough trigonometry to measure the uh, radius of the earth i teach it to my students i take them out show them how easy it is to measure the radius of the earth extremely easy but he didn't know how to do it so the chronometer solved the longitude problem in a particular in principle there was a problem of course the problem persisted in principle in a way which did not require calculation or any application of the mind mechanically you could do that is that was the hope it became part of the culture as you see shackled to industrial civilization this has uh, made our life quite miserable we all the time running out of time that's why i'm so happy we started a little late <laughs> it shows that this is why i like artists so much so you have no time left for yourself to be creative you should have that it's very important even music has become mechanized now i am not an expert on music i'm sure all of you are if you look at the so called pythagorean comma that if you are ascending by 12 perfect fifths that's not the same as seven octaves and therefore uh, uh, this is a very simple calculation and therefore uh, western music today uses the equal tempered scale that's how pianos are tuned if i understand correctly so that somebody composes music somewhere somebody else plays it somewhere else it should always play the same so that's mechanization that's homogenization that's standardization which preceded so to say industrialization it requires hegemony really so every note is slightly off key in the sense that if i try to play indian classical music on a keyboard it sounds a little odd slightly odd slightly tinny whereas if you see actual instruments they are so uh, they are always flexible and the composer is also the one who is playing so uh, anyway uh, let me get back to the issue of uh, uh, precise trigonometric values the european longitude problem arose because europe then did not have precise trigonometric values it also relates to the problem of loxodromes mercator's chart which also required precise table of seconds i won't go into that the most accurate trigonometric values which is what was being searched for at that time in the 16th century were in india they were accurate as i said to 10 decimal places i won't show you the chart uh, you can see it elsewhere or i can show it to you afterwards because i want to try and keep uh, time time is running out so <laughs> i want to keep this so they were calculated using an infinite series so these uh, this as you know was invented in india goes back 1000 years to aryabhat and in kochi in the jesuit had a college which started functioning around 1550 and they were mass translating all sorts of local texts on the toledo model of mass translation of arabic text to latin here they mass translated sanskrit text to latin and sent them to rome 
So I have a whole book on that, fact book of 500 pages. So you are getting a panorama, remember? I can't go into all those details. This is what it says. Transmission of calculus from India to Europe in the 16th century, what all happened and how it was misunderstood. Well, that's the important thing. So today, calculus, credit for calculus is given to Newton and Leibniz. And neither understood it. Now about Leibniz, Newton has a lot to say. This guy didn't understand. He came for help. You know, there was a big dispute between them. And this is what he writes. Newton himself didn't understand it. They understood the practical value. And that practical value, today, if you use calculus on a computer, it works differently. But I'm talking about the way it is taught, the way I myself used to teach it. I taught it for so many years in Pune University, once upon a time. I used to do formal mathematics. I gave it up. It added tons of junk metaphysics, because there is infinity, and infinity relates to eternity. And eternity relates to theology. So how do you handle it? You have to handle it in a particular way, and that is what uh, created uh, the requirement for that metaphysics. People like Descartes didn't understand what was happening. He said it's beyond the human mind. Now, Newton thought that uh, God had uh, formulated the laws of nature using the perfect language of mathematics. See, the laws, eternal laws. If they are eternal, then the language which you describe them, which you used to describe them, must also be perfect. Any error means sometime during the course of eternity you'll discover it. Problem. And so he tried to make calculus perfect. And how do you make calculus perfect? You can't make it perfect in the uh, physical world. So he did it by making time metaphysical. In physics, he's doing physics, and in his uh, Principia, the Scholium, he starts absolute, true, and mathematical time. Flows on without regard to anything external. Without regard to anything external, this is metaphysics. It's not physics. Absolute, true, mathematical. The four uh, adjectival phrases in a row. Hmm? So he did not define a way to measure time. It's good enough if God knows. To do physics, you also need to know. Physical measure of time is needed to make sense of Newton's laws of physics. So let's take, I suppose you have heard of Newton's laws, you did it in school perhaps. First law, very simple. So it talks of uniform motion, the body states continues in its state of rest or uniform motion. What is uniform motion? So uniform motion means it moves, covers equal distances in equal times. Equal distances, let's assume we know what they are. But what are equal times? I can't bring back one hour from the past and one hour from the future and put them together in the present and say, okay, this is longer, this is shorter. I can't do that. So equal times is something that you have to define. Right? You cannot judge. If you believe you can judge, then as Poincaré said, you are dupes of an illusion. So the equality of time intervals has to be defined. It has to be defined by a physical way, by some special clock which is take out. Hmm? Newtonian physics failed century ago just because of this. It failed to define time. And therefore it failed and, and it was replaced by relativity. But this was a conceptual error about time. So all wrongly taught in physics texts, you know, the Michelson-Morley experiment is that's not correct. There's a conceptual error about time, and that is why Newton and physics failed. And that conceptual error arose from superstitions about laws of nature, about this, that, and so on. So that's the important lesson to learn. See, scientific theories fail, that's not a problem. Why do they fail is something we need to understand.
So this is discussed in another book of mine. This is on the physics of time, called Time Towards a Consistent Theory. It's discussed in quite some detail. So maybe you can take a look at it. So now let's just take stock. We, I mean, colonialism brought a bad calendar, a religious and unscientific calendar. It brought a mechanical clock. But the third gift, most important, is a mechanistic cosmos. Clockwork cosmos. So why is it difficult? I mean, the pro problem is you want to change, say, Newtonian physics. It's not so easy. And I have done it. It's not that you can't do it. But the point is, when you try to change it, you run into church dogma. What is the church dogma? Aquinas said in Summa Theologica that God rules the world with eternal laws, with laws, and then he said nothing in the nature of time in God, and therefore those laws have to be eternal. So this is what he says in uh, uh, Summa Theologica. Now the belief in laws of nature is not found in other religions. You don't find it in Islam where you have habits, you have ittafaq. You don't find it in Hinduism, you have rit. You don't find it in Buddhism, you have paticca samuppat, conditioned co-origination. So it's unique there. And it is done there for certain political purposes. That's why Aquinas took that position against uh, providence. Won't go into two the details of that. So the West superstitiously came to believe that there are laws of nature. Laws, mind you, not regularities. Regularities are there, we see that. But laws is a different thing, not habits. Habits are there. So specifically, physical law has to be formulated as differential equations using calculus. Now, some of you, I mean, you're artists, so you may be frightened by hearing the term differential equations. Instinct is absolutely right. <laughs> so, there is something problematic. Differential equations are a way to steal your soul. Now, you wonder why, what am I talking about? How are differential equations a way to steal your soul? So, let's see. Let me explain. Today, you, when you write down differential equations, it is done on the Western understanding of calculus. And this assumes, if you want a time derivative, derivative with respect to time as you have to have, say, in Newtonian physics, a d by dt, then the time t must be like the real line. Complete metaphysics, nothing to do with the real world. Just the way you do calculus, metaphysically. Therefore, it should be like a line. Now, that's very bad. Maybe it's like a line, maybe it's like something else, whatever it is like. But it should have some reference to the physical reality. It can't be done just on the strength of metaphysics. That I do calculus this way, therefore time must be like this. Ridiculous, isn't it? But that's what happens. Right? So you require that. And I have taught this thing, sad to say, for seven years <laughs> to innocent students until I abandoned it. Anyway, what has that got to do with the soul? How is your soul being stolen? So the point is that the ancient notion of soul was understood in the physical context of quasi-cyclic time. It was placed in that physical context. Or a quasi-cyclic cosmos. So in a quasi-cyclic cosmos, approximately the same events repeat. All events repeat, so you are also reborn. All people are reborn. Approximately. Maybe sometime it may come that you are not reborn. This doesn't happen immediately after death, but billions of years later, if you are able to measure time for, this, for that period. As Nietzsche said, people are not conscious of that time. 
So this is what he says. His whole philosophy was based on this uh, idea of eternal recurrence, which he thought was opposed to Christian doctrine. So you fancy you'll have a long rest before your second birth, but do not deceive yourself. Like a flash of lightning, the space will go by even though living creatures think it is billions of years and are not even able to reckon it. Timelessness and immediate rebirth are compatible. This is what Nietzsche says. Now, is he being superstitious? He's not being superstitious. He was using the physics that was present in his time. And he was using Newtonian physics. He had a proper understanding of Newtonian physics. If you have a closed cosmos or a gas in a box, then every state, every microstate will repeat infinitely often. This is what Newtonian physics says. Not just Newtonian physics, any kind of physics which is reversible. So I have a general formulation of this so-called Poincare recurrence theorem in my book. I discussed it. So every configuration repeats, so the dead two are reborn according to Newtonian physics. Newtonian physics has failed different matter. We're coming to that. And how much time you are in principle able to calculate it, something called Poincare recurrence time. In practice, you can only calculate it in some very simple cases. It involves certain things called ergodicity, this, that, and so on. Won't go into that. The point is that Nietzsche used a mechanistic physics. Now, when he used a mechanistic physics, because physics in his time was mechanistic, he used whatever science was available to him. You don't blame Nietzsche, but you blame the mechanistic physics. On that, it is endlessly repetitive. That's why I said you have to be a superman to put up with it. But, so far as we are concerned, what's the error he made? He confounded quasi-cyclic time in which change is possible. It is like one day being a repeat of the next, of the previous, but not identical. But if you have a mechanistic cosmos, it's identical. And if they are identical, or then are very close to identical, then that is supercyclic time. So that's the difference, that's the terminology I've used. And lots of Western thinkers have confounded uh, 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 quasi-cyclic time with eternal recurrence. Murphy, Eliot, T.S. Eliot, and so on. Long chain of thinkers have made this mistake. In fact, post-Nicene Christianity is founded on the identical confusion. And in early Christianity, you had a different notion of soul. Origen, who was the primary uh, spokesperson for early Christianity, who wrote the Hexapla on which the Latin Vulgate, Jerome's Vulgate is founded. He uh, accepted that the notion of soul was based on quasi-cyclic time. On my web page, I have got lots of quotations from Oregon's Deep Principles, which shows that he was very clearly he emphasized the quasi-cyclicity. But Augustine misrepresented him. He said that if Christ died and is reborn, then he died in vain. So he said, heaven forbid that we believe this for Christ having died once for our sins, rising again, dies no more. So it's resurrection, not reincarnation. So he confounded what Oregon said with quasi, with eternal recurrence. He misrepresented. And there are clear-cut political benefits from it. And the, that is why the church cursed the belief in cyclic time, so-called cyclic time, in the Fifth Ecumenical Council at the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. And that created a Western false dichotomy between linear time and cyclic time, and today lots of people are still victims of it. 
oh, there's linear time, there's cyclic time. We can have several varieties of linear time. We can have several varieties of cyclic time. And there is no uh, clear-cut dichotomy. And that's why this book of mine is called The Eleven Pictures of Time. That it isn't that uh, you have one and one makes a dichotomy. They make 11. And it's about this discuss the politics of it, the physics of it, the philosophy of it is discussed in great detail there. This is a panorama. I can't go into those details. We'll discuss it later. So the church changed uh, Christianity for political reasons. It was not happy with equity and it was not happy with creativity. So you have a mechanistic cosmos and you have iniquity. It changed uh, reincarnation to resurrection and turned the soul metaphysical. That's how you lost your soul. And that is reflected in the differential equations of physics. So how do you recover it? I think if you have a soul, you would like to recover it, especially if you are artist. So you need to have you need to have a science which is compatible with creativity, the creativity that you observe at an everyday level. And the answer is to decolonize time. Reject the gifts of colonialism or church, whatever you call it. And how do you do that? So the calendar and clock that I gave in some detail, they're just easy examples. So you can see what went wrong, that something inferior was paraded as superior, something manifestly inferior. In the case of science and mathematics, it's not manifest. It's much more complicated, but it is inferior all the same. And uh, so correcting the calendar and escaping the tyranny of the clock is not enough. It's the first step. It's not enough. And the key thing is to reject the clockwork cosmos. It's not a mechanistic cosmos. And you know it, you see it, you observe it, and then restore equity along with creativity. That's the idea. And that requires a reform of both religion and a reformulation or decolonization of science and mathematics, which is what I'm engaged in these days, and it is resulting in big quarrels across the world. So let us see how we go about doing it. Now, whatever little time I have left, I think I have come to my last point, so I should be able to finish it. It's a very huge agenda, again. So the easiest step, easiest, conceptually easiest, politically maybe extremely difficult, maybe impossible, is to reclaim original Christianity. Right? All the changes that the church has made in it for political reasons, you have to reject and go back to what it was earlier. And that will give you back the original notion of, you reclaim it, original notion of soul, along with the original notion of immanent God. The God is inside you, not outside, not a transcendent God whose broker is the priest who benefits from his transcendence, from his power. And it would also restore equity and compassion, which is sorely missing from inequitable church Christianity. You know, the genocides, you go to North America, South America, all based on doctrine of Christian discovery, that non-Christians have no right to live in Australia, Red Indians and so on. But uh, to be able to make sense out of it, you have to be able to do a non-mechanistic science because today science is what has credibility. And to be able to do a non-mechanistic science is very deep, layers after layers after layer which you have to uncover. You have to go to the bottom of mathematics, which is the base, the calculus, which is the base, and reformulate it. So that the mere use of calculus does not make time linear. Why should it? Maybe time is like that, but why merely because of that. So it is possible to use, using my philosophy of math, which is called zeroism, and instead of the Western philosophy of maths, done by Hilbert and Russell, David Hilbert and Russell, which is called formalism, 
And it in fact makes math so easy that you can teach calculus in five days and I have demonstrated that in several teaching experiments. If you like to learn, you can learn without any background in mathematics. You can learn calculus and solve any problem in one of those fat calculus texts. All right, demonstrated it in five days, I'm willing to demonstrate it. So there's an abstract of my, uh, abstract in the video of my MIT talk where I've discussed the various technical details. And uh, I'm working on making math easy in schools now with the Indian Institute of Education. Zeroism is a realistic and a practical philosophy. It's not idealistic, it rejects idealism, and it rejects uh, this impractical and spiritual ideas related to Western math. As you know, Plato related math to the soul. Proclue related math to the soul. And so that was a spiritual belief coming from Egyptian mystery geometry, but this is not spiritual, this is realistic, it's practical. And it is so-called because it is uh, similar to Buddhist Shunyavad, as you know, in India, there was a long quarrel between the realistic uh, Shunyavad and the Nayaikas. And it accepts math as inexact, approximation, and non-eternal, as is explicitly stated in the Indian Shurva Sutra, which that did geometry, and that's the geometry I'm trying to teach now, instead of what is done. Okay, so you can also see a video of my conversation with the Dalai Lama on Zeroism and Shunyavad. So many details are discussed there. Just have to Google CK Raju and Dalai Lama, you should get it. So not only makes math easy, that's not the only issue. We are not only changing the, uh, making it easy to do, it leads to a better science, it's the foundation for a better science. And, uh, but the West of course opposes it. it. Says colonized have no right to formulate. Who are you? Why, how can you formulate a philosophy of math? You take the philosophy of math we gave you. There cannot be anything else. This is universal. And uh, as you might know, uh, I've written an article on to decolonize math, stand up to its false history and bad philosophy. It was published by The Conversation, went viral, some 17,000 hits, and then the South Africa editor took it down, censored it, and, uh, well, this is going on. It has now just recently been republished in the Journal of Black Studies in the context of decolonization in South Africa. So decolonization, if you wish to achieve in the education system, you have to hit at the core of mathematics and science, not enough to just talk about social sciences. That's needed. But you need to, uh, unless you change mathematics and science, you cannot decolonize the education system. And that's why I'm focusing on that, and that's what's going on in South Africa. Okay, so uh, proposed reform, yeah, I'll just uh, conclude. Proposed reform of science allows future to interact with present and past, directly interact. And it's also called a tilt in the arrow of time. It changes the equations of physics to mixed type functional differential equations, never mind. What it does is that it results in a non-mechanistic physics and which permits both spontaneity and creativity. So, if everything has a cause, whether in the present or the past, it makes the world mechanistic. You always have a chain of causes. But if there is something, so spontaneity, by spontaneity I mean uncaused. And that can happen in a world where everything is not decided by the past or the future can interact. But then it's not determined from both past and future either. Now that's something mathematical which is explained in my books. I can explain it later. I'll just uh, conclude for now. It allows the creativity that is basic to artists. Science says the whole cosmos is a clockwork, is a mechanism. Where is art possible? Art is not possible. So anyway, just uh, what do you create? 
Physically, Newtonian physics was reversible, so entropy stays constant. You cannot create or destroy order. History-dependent physics is irreversible. Entropy or disorder must increase. But physics with history dependence plus anticipation allows entropy to occasionally decrease. So you are creating order, creating harmony. So we have Popper's pond. If you throw a stone in a pond, ripples spread out. But the other solution is physically possible. That ripples start uh, spontaneously at the edge of the pond, converge to the center, and throw the stone out. And you could see that if you take a film and replay it backward. Popper's question was, how do you know that this uh, film is genuine? Suppose somebody comes up and says, look, I filmed this rare event, happened, I saw it, and here's the film. So you juggled the film. Why? Because he said that his, uh, um, uh, his idea was that uh, how do you explain it, how do you reproduce it? So spontaneous events are not reproducible like dreams. That's the thing, so they are non-mechanistic, and so his explanation of his pond paradox was incorrect. He said he would respond to me, but unfortunately he died. So, <laughs> with the new physics, such uncaused events are permitted, and that is how we create harmony in the cosmos, and we create it. Hmm? So that's immanence. You are the creator. I started with the Rigveda. Let me end with the Upanishad. The Upanishads, as they say, tat tvamasi, that art thou. Right? And that is also the Sufi doctrine. That's also the doctrine in the Neoplatonic doctrine and so on. And so the task of creating a better and more harmonious world is ongoing. It's part of the music you create, the celestial harmony you create. Thank you very much. Many thanks, C.K. Raju. For very urgent questions, um, we have a microphone to meant to circulate as much as possible before we continue with um, Rolando Vasquez after a brief break. So please go ahead. Um, yeah, I have a simple question um, over here. Yes, please. Um, so how do you think now the, this scam is out? Um, how are the, is Western society um, addressing this issue? Well, one way is censorship. <laughs> Yeah. We won't let you speak. We, for example, in Germany, there's a Munich Center for Mathematical Philosophy. Do they take into account any non-Western philosophy of mathematics? If you see the philosophy departments of all the uh, U.S. universities, they don't teach uh, non-Western philosophies. That's done as South Asian studies and so on. So I think the Western world realizes, and it is extremely insecure, and it is trying its best to suppress these things, but I think it was a mistake to censor a viral article. In India, the newspapers were a little smarter. One of them censored it, put it back. And nothing happened, nothing, no catastrophe occurred. So they made a foolish mistake, and that has brought this to the limelight. Now, whatever the Western world does, I don't know. But in South Africa, we are going to try and change the system. I'm going there again in uh, September, and we hope to change the university syllabus. In India, we are trying to change the school syllabus in mathematics. You define a point as something which is invisible. How, does, how can a child understand it? You say it can't be expressed in words and so on. There's a whole lot of junk metaphysics which is intended to confound you. And so that is the concrete effort taking place on the ground. We start by changing the mathematics syllabus and then talk about the science, that is relevant science, retarded gravitation theory and so on. And I think that they will accept eventually. What else can they do? They have no choice. 
Um, uh, so, um, <clears throat> do you see a danger in this process? Because um, if the Western, yeah, that would mean that Western culture has to transform or loses its um, identity, so to speak, over the rest of the non-white people, so to speak. Absolutely, you are right that the power is threatened, and that is why you resort to censorship. And uh, what happens, see, the point is, ultimately, we want to unindoctrinate. So as more and more people become aware that there are all these scams going on, they start thinking about it. And they start thinking about what's happening in terms of history, what's happening in terms of philosophy, and so on. And I think that once the process is initiated, I think there is a some kind of irreversibility about it. When it will happen, I can't say. But even typically, it takes something like 10 to 15 years. See, when I started working on the calculus, I thought I am mad. What am I doing? But then, 15 years later, everybody accepts it. Now they are arguing on a different issue. So I think this is a process of inevitability, and I agree with you that it's the basis of Western power to be seen as superior. If that goes, then we'll have a better world. <laughs> Right. Yeah, thank you for your inspiring talk. Uh, I would like to have you uh, elaborate a little bit on the role of the zero in your thinking, because mm -hmm. uh, in Western thought, uh, normally it's said nothing comes from nothing, so um, there's uh, a, a different kind of uh, mathematics and uh, uh, philosophical approach by Gotthard Günther. I don't, I don't know if you know him. And uh, he has the idea that uh, the productive source is in the zero and not uh, in, in the numbers. Uh, so uh, maybe you can talk about this issue a little bit and tell me, why your uh, thinking on zero is not a kind of metaphysics. Okay. Now, let us discriminate, first of all, between zero and zeroism. When you talk of zero, let us also discriminate between zero as a symbol and zero as an algebraic entity. So what happened in Europe was that zero came as part of an efficient arithmetic which, uh, uh, for example, when your uh, this uh, Gerbert, uh, Pope Sylvester, he was the first to bring in the uh, so-called Arabic numerals. So if you see the abacus he constructed, he uses a symbol, blank symbol for zero. So he understood the symbol, but he didn't understand the algorithms, which came from Al-Khwarizmi, Hisab al-Hind. He didn't understand that. That's very obvious from the very fact that he set up an abacus. The abacus is a very inefficient method of doing arithmetic, and algorithmus is a very efficient method. So it was the efficient method of doing arithmetic which came, which is why the Florentine merchants insisted on it. What is the problem with zero? One of the problems is zero. If you look at Roman numerals, Roman numerals are additive. So if I write XII, it is 10 plus 1 plus 1. But if you use zero, it's not additive. All right. So if I have, uh, let us say, uh, 103, that's not the same thing as 4. So Florence passed a law against zero, that if you are using this uh, newfangled stuff, you have to uh, write it also in uh, words. 
So that's, so far as zero is concerned, there's the issue of its algebraic thing. So far as zeroism is concerned, it is something different. So zeroism says, first of all, if you look at Buddhism, it would say that you accept only two means of proof. One is what is empirically manifest. If I see the chair, it is there. That's a means of proof. And the other is inference. Now, inference using what logic is a different story. Inference. So I have only these two things, and then that tells me that everything is approximate in the world. You, for example, are not the same person you were when you came. You changed. You heard so many things. I'm not the same person. I've drunk so much water, done something. <laughs> things have changed. <laughs> All right. So you neglect those things. You zero those differences in normal discourse. You will not say Raju 1, Raju 2, Raju 3 for each instant of time. As you go every, with every breath, I change. So the idea is that this is something you do for convenience, but there is no exactitude possible, which is completely different from the idea of mathematics as an exact science. That exactitude is metaphysics. Okay, this is realistic. And if I am doing any actual calculation, if I want to send a rocket to the moon, I can only do these approximate calculations which I do on a computer. So the idea is to accept that. And throw away, that's what I said, Trilba Sutra says, it's inexact and non-eternal. So that's the idea of doing mathematics. So I have not introduced any complicated metaphysics of infinity. This is what you observe and what you infer from that. Right? That's the idea. Not avoiding all metaphysics. I'm not a positivist. Okay, that's not what I'm doing. But some metaphysics is different from metaphysics related to church dogmas. I have one question in regards of the quasi-circle time. Does it uh, evolve in the depth? Sorry? The quasi-circle time that you mentioned, does it evolve in the depth? Depth? You mean, is it spread out like this? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, yes. Because the argument is that if you have such a tilt in the arrow of time, it leads to a structure of time, a non-trivial structure of time. I didn't talk about it because if you have a non-trivial structure of time, it leads to a different kind of logic. If you look at the temporal logic that is related to it, it becomes like a parallel computer. Okay, It becomes, uh, well, every your phone is a parallel computer now. But <laughs> it becomes like that in the sense that uh, you have multiple streams of time going along. But we are talking about physics. We are talking about mathematics. So the logic has changed, the physics has changed. It results in quantum mechanics. So that's also the thesis that I have argued out, the structure of time, because quantum logic is different from everyday logic, right? or different from two-valued logic. And there you can have A and not A, and there is nothing wrong with that. The world doesn't collapse. It's not inconsistent. Schrodinger's cat can be both alive and dead at one instant of time, and the world doesn't collapse. Such a thing is possible. So there is depth, if you mean that, there is a structure of time. That's a precise way of putting it. I hope I have understood correctly what you said. Is that what you meant? Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for this wonderful lecture, the great power of your thought. I had um, a comment and a question. The comment was, I wonder if you'd agree, well, it's another question, I wonder if you'd agree, I want to dig into the hegemony, this repressive hegemony of the sciences that you've described. Um, I'm very sympathetic. 
I'm a social scientist, and uh, what I observe, and please forgive me the Americans in the room, is that it's the sheer scale of the American um, scientific meetings in my disciplines. It's three or 4,000 people who get together annually, and there's an incredibly normative power that's exerted by the scale and the centralization of thought in these bodies. And I wonder if this rings a bell for you in terms of how the sciences keep the fortress kind of surrounded from new thought. Uh, and this kind of um, uh, the momentum, the inertial qualities of, of these, these forms of thought you've described, the, the reductive, deterministic, and so on. The second comment follows your, your previous one, which is about quantum theory. And uh, I, I'm the granddaughter of Max Born. And I wanted to just ask you, are you saying that you think quantum thought does open up links to the kind of way of thinking that you want to propose? Mm. Okay. As regards your first question on hegemony, I have written on it, Ending Academic Imperialism. And in that booklet, uh, I looked at how exactly science is decided, what is the refereeing system, how it is manipulated, and so on. But uh, my idea was that if we are decolonizing, we look at what Macaulay did. He introduced this education system based on a false history of science. And therefore, I said, if you want to reverse, let us first of all change that. On that basis, I taught a new course in history and philosophy of science in the Al-Bukhari International University. So that was the first step. And the next step, I believe, is decolonization of mathematics and science, which is an ongoing activity right now. So I believe that despite the power of money, I agree there is a huge amount of money being thrown in, and I agree that that has power, and it can be misused when, once upon a time, I too had a lot of money to dispose of, and I know how it can be used. I have first-hand experience of that. But uh, uh, I think that it will not stand up. So one example of that is that uh, the top mathematician copied my work and claimed credit for it. So they realized there's some substance in it. As regards your second question about quantum mechanics, I think it is the case that there is a problem, conceptual problem about time in uh, Newtonian physics. And if you eliminate it, then I think that uh, quantum mechanics comes out in a very natural way. This is what I have been arguing. There is nothing mysterious about it. This is what you should expect if you did not have all those dogmas about time sitting on top. So approximately, See, if you take logic, two-valued logic is not normative. It's only approximately true. So when you go to a smaller domain there, it fails. So that's the kind of uh, argument that I'm looking at. If you look at a straight line, for example, Newtonian physics says particles must move in a straight line. Where do you see particles moving in a straight line? For that matter, what is a straight line? <laughs> right. It's only a metaphysical thing. You don't see an electron moving in a straight line. You don't see a photon moving in a straight line. They're all wavy motion, even according to classical physics. So that's only approximately the case. And once you go to the microphysical level, it changes. So I believe that is the case. It's ontologically the case. And, uh, and that's what I subscribe to. Yeah. I don't like to be the timekeeper. Um, thank you so much, uh, CK Raju, for this very important talk for this uh, day today and the days to come. I have a spontaneous idea, but before, before I would like to say goodbye to our 
millions of followers on Facebook. Um, uh, because we will make a, make a break now of about 10 minutes before Orlando Vasquez will start. But I have a spontaneous idea. As you're here anyway, I would propose that for those interested, we create a spontaneously another kind of seminar or sure. group sure. that could go into depth uh, with you. And um, I will... We will try to come up with a time and place in the next three or four days until you have to okay. leave again yeah. so that we can uh, harness um, all these uh, great interest and many interesting things you have brought up. Thank you. Short break and we continue soon.